Well, good morning. It's always good to be with you, as Keith mentioned at the welcome. We're in our second week of a three-week kind of mini-series of sermons where we're focusing on this most important question ever. And as Carrie said during our our communion time, each one of us has to, to explore our hearts, reflect in our souls on how we would answer that question. Now, of course, the overall best answer is the one Peter gives when he says that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who comes to save God's people, and he's the Son of God. He's, he's the, the presence of God in our world. But we've got to wrestle with what do we mean when we say that. And so last week, we kind of talked about this idea that while Jesus in Revelation says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, we talked about that Jesus is also the end and the beginning. He's the end of our old life, and he is the beginning of our new life, a new life that we get to live in anticipation of a new world. And this morning, we're going to be thinking through the ways that Jesus is able to keep all of the amazing promises of God that that God makes throughout Scripture, and he helps them come true. And so we find that Jesus isn't just in the Bible, but Jesus is the Bible coming true. What do we mean when we say that? Well, I want to start with a personal experience, with with a story out of my own life. Uh, When I was about 13 years old, an older guy from our church named Ron Abel uh, reached out to me and three of my my closest friends, some guys we we were always trying to to spend time together, hanging out and and just getting to know one another and really trying to figure out who we were going to be when we became adults. And, and Ron knew that we were always thinking about the future and, and dreaming and talking about it. And so he came to us one Sunday morning after church and he said, how would you guys like to spend every Monday for the next three months learning how to preach? And I got to tell you, it didn't sound like a whole lot of fun. And we looked at each other and we thought, I don't, I don't know. And, but, but we respected Ron. He was an elder at our church, and he was friends with our dads. And we thought, eh, we probably shouldn't tell an elder no about preaching. So we, we signed up for it. And so he was true to his word. Every Monday night for the next three months, we spent roughly two hours in an empty auditorium, and he was trying to teach us how to preach. The first thing he did was he said, I don't want to waste a bunch of time with you guys trying to write sermons. They're probably not going to be good anyway. So he found this published book of beginner sermons, and he let us pick. Each of us had, had a few to pick from, and we, we all chose our sermons. And he said, okay, take them home, read through them, make some small changes. Don't make any really good, you know, major changes, because if you change a good portion of it, it's probably not going to be a very good sermon. We said, okay. So we made some changes. He said, the most important thing is for you to to memorize these manuscripts word for word. And that took a while. I mean, they they were roughly about 20-minute sermons, which I'm sure you wish I was still preaching, but we'll we'll leave that for now. So about 20-minute sermons, and and that's, that's quite a bit to memorize word for word. But we worked on it, and so for the first month, that's pretty much all we were doing. We'd each get up, preach our sermon a couple of times, he would critique us, and, and that first month, we pretty much were just stumbling through the material. But finally, we got it down. And then he said, okay, now we got to work on like what you're going to do while you're up there. 
And what he was talking about was our, our posture and our hand motions and where we were going to be on the stage. And you might think that all of that would come naturally when you get up on a stage in front of a bunch of people because everybody's kind of looking in your direction and you might want to be careful with where you are and what you're doing and especially where and who you're pointing at. None of that comes naturally. I mean, two of us just pace back and forth like we were running a marathon in front of the church. The other two stayed stuck right behind the pulpit, and it'd be one thing if you just stayed in one place, but they kind of were swaying uh, because they were nervous. And, and then all of us had these times where we were using our hands in weird ways that were just awkward. And one guy, I'm not going to name him, his name was Robert, he, uh, Robert Levis, he, he had a hard time with knowing where to just kind of let his hands hover. And so they just kind of st stayed somewhere like right here. He wasn't touching the pulpit, he wasn't moving other than the swaying, and it just got to where you couldn't listen to anything he was saying because you were worried about what was going to happen to him. <laughs> so we worked through that for a month, and we got to where we knew where we were supposed to stand, and we knew where we were supposed to point, not, not to point at anybody, especially in the, the challenging parts of the sermon. Well, the third month, Ron said, okay, when the, when the, the church is in here, there's going to be all kinds of distractions. Right? There's not going to just be one person sitting on the second row staring at you the whole time you're trying to preach unless your mom's there. And so you got to get used to this. So he, he turned up the lights the way they were going to be on that Sunday night when we preached. And, and he had our, our mics on and the sound system was on. We, he, he even made us wear the suits and the ties we were going to wear when we preached on that Sunday night. And then he tried to distract us. I mean, he would make the mic squeal. He would storm out in the middle of the challenging part of the sermon like he was angry. He even at one point in the middle of my sermon started crying like a baby at the top of his lungs. And I'm telling you, he was able to knock all of us off of our, our train of thought. And he, he, he got us to the point where we could give those 20-minute sermons no matter what. And so finally that Sunday night came. Two of us were going to preach the first Sunday night, and, and two of us were going to preach the next week. I got to go first, uh, and as soon as I, I got up to start preaching, I was wearing this, uh, I don't know what else to call it other than a plum-colored suit. Uh, this was the, uh, you know, early 90s, uh, and it did nothing to make me look good. I'll just say that. Um, and so I got up there, and I started talking, and I, I preached for 20 minutes and 53 seconds, and I don't remember a bit of it. I just kind of went into autopilot, right? These eloquent words from the borrowed sermon that he'd given me were flowing freely out of my, my lips, and I was able to have all these precise hand motions and placements on the stage, and, and I was able to, to ignore all of the distractions that were happening seamlessly with, with no problem, uh, and I, I remember the opening line of that sermon. I'll never forget it. I said it so many times. It was on Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose true. Dare to make it known. It went downhill from there. And, and then it was over. And then I, I tried to listen to my friend James preach, but I'd heard that sermon so much I could quote it. Uh, and we got through it. And at the end of Sunday night church that night, all of, all of our church family surrounded us and and there were little old ladies hugging us with tears in their eyes. And our parents were standing at a distance with, with pride on their faces. And I thought, if this is what preaching is, sign me up. Like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. 
Now, seriously, that, that moment of, of preaching changed my life. It took me years after that to make the final decision that I really wanted to, to live my life in pursuit of full-time ministry, but that sermon was the beginning of that dream in my, in my heart. Now, when we look at Jesus and his ministry, and his life, he grew up going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Every Sabbath day, that's where he was. And he would go there and gather together with God's people, and they would worship. They would sing. They would pray. They, they would open up the words of Scripture. They would have those words read over them. And they didn't just want the words read over them, but they wanted those words to find a home in their hearts. They reflected on them. They, they talked about them. They, they tried to figure out how they were going to be people who not only listened to God, but lived for God, lived up to the, the, the beautiful glory of the calling that God had placed on their lives. So in other words, Jesus grew up every single week going to to synagogue in much the same way that many of us grow up every single week and we go to church. And he gets to a place in his life where he has an opportunity to preach a sermon to those people that he, he grew up going to synagogue with. And, and you, you've got to think through what, what he was feeling and thinking when he gets an opportunity, not just to speak to anyone, but to speak to the people who know him better than anyone else. Got your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 16. Luke four sixteen. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place, so he chose this, right? He has Isaiah, but he chooses the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that's from Isaiah 61. These are words that that everybody there, they know these words by heart. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today this scripture is coming true. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to this widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. 
All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now this, this is not the way you expect a hometown sermon to go. I mean, it starts out that way, right? He reads from Isaiah 61, words they've, they've heard before. And then when he reads them, he, he says, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. The scripture is coming true. But, but mostly, uh, it's what happens next that changes everything. Because in the course of the following eight verses, after he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he then goes on to talk about what he means by that. More specifically, he goes on to talk about who he has in mind when he talks about these words of Scripture coming true. And it is amazing to me just how fast this hometown crowd shifts from being impressed with him and being kind of proud of who he is and saying, isn't he Joseph's son? And, and all of them, you know, have, having this sense that he's going on to do amazing and big things. But then when he continues to talk, they... They go from being impressed with his eloquence to burning with such anger against him that they push him to the edge of a, a, a cliff and they're trying to throw him off. Now, I've preached a few sermons in my day that have frustrated some people, but to my knowledge, I've never had anyone plot to kill me after a sermon. <laughs> and the question is why, not why has somebody not tried to kill me, but why do these people shift this quickly? These nice old ladies that that remember when Jesus was just this tall. And these, these kind old gentlemen who, who are patient and thoughtful, suddenly they're enraged and they're about to do They go from, from loving him to hating him, from being proud of him to wanting to see him dead. And, and the reason that shift takes place is as simple as it is heartbreaking. They turn on Jesus because he suggests that God has sent him not only to bless their lives, but also to bless the lives of other people who are nothing like them. He wants to bless outsiders. He wants to bless foreigners. He wants to bless people who belong to different walks of life, different backgrounds, even different faiths. Jesus doesn't want to save part of the world. He wants to save the whole world. He was sent not just for some, but for everyone. And it's this globally inclusive shift that infuriates the people listening to him. They want God to do something different. I mean, if we're going to get honest, they want Jesus to be something different. They want God, they want Christ to bless them more than he blesses anybody else. They want to be the only ones who get to hear the gracious good news that Isaiah is talking about. They want to be the only ones who get to experience the freedom that Isaiah was talking about. They want to be the only ones who, in the, the brokenness of their lives, the, they, they find healing that Isaiah is talking about. They want to be the only ones who get to overcome the oppression that they face. They want to be the only ones. And Jesus says, you're not the only ones. This is for everyone. It's for you, but it's also for people who aren't anything like you. And Jesus isn't willing to compromise on this. It's the core of who he is. It's, it's the core of the mission that God has given him. He's He's not willing to put this up for debate. 
This is for everyone. And they simply cannot handle it. Jesus wants them to see what they're really struggling to see. That God wants to start something in them. God wants to start something with them. God wants to start something through them that blesses everyone. Jesus wants those who don't have enough to see that help is here. Jesus wants those who are trapped and stuck with with no way out to know that freedom is here. Jesus wants those who are broken and blind to trust that healing is here. Jesus wants those who are overlooked and excluded to realize that acceptance is here. And it can't just be for, for the people who've always seen themselves as the target audience of what Isaiah's talking about. Jesus says this is for everyone, and God is wanting to do this work not just in them or for them, but through them. That's what he means when he says that the scripture is coming true. Now, when I think back to the first sermon I ever preached in that plum suit, I, I was busy trying to tell everybody what to believe in, what to stand up for, right? Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. But Jesus isn't doing that. He's busy in his first sermon asking us to believe not so much in ideas, but to believe in people. Jesus is telling us not what to stand up for, but who to stand up for. The poor, the enslaved, the broken, the oppressed. Growing up, whenever I would read a section of scripture like Luke chapter 4, and I'd listen to what Jesus says, I would immediately spiritualize his words, right? I immediately assumed that what Jesus was really talking about was all those people who are, are spiritually poor and spiritually held captive and spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed. And while I certainly believe that that's part of what Jesus is talking about, I find it impossible to believe that that's all Jesus is talking about. Because while it's certainly possible... For us to only be spiritually poor or spiritually trapped, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, it's just as possible that we find ourselves in all of those physical realities at the same time. That we are physically poor, physically enslaved, physically blind, physically oppressed. Jesus didn't come to ignore that. He didn't come to save part of the world. He was sent on a mission to save all of the world. And he didn't just come to save part of each one of us. He was sent on a mission to save all of who we are, the spiritual, the physical, the emotional, the social, all of who we are, all of us. And and throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, as we read it carefully together as a church, we're going to discover that Jesus is constantly working actively to make the good news that he's describing actually happen. When he comes across somebody who really is spiritually poor, he helps them experience the rich love of God. But if they happen to be physically poor, he shares whatever bread and fish he has on hand until they've had enough. Right When he comes across people who are spiritually enslaved, prisoners in their own souls because of shame or regret or, or all of the, the mistakes that they've made, he does what he can to help, them, to, to help them experience the shower of grace that gets them unstuck. But if they're physically imprisoned, Jesus wants to find a way 
to help bring healing to their lives so that they could one day be restored to their community. He wants to set them free. When Jesus comes across somebody who's, who's spiritually blind, they can't see the truth, they can't see where God is really asking them to go, Jesus finds a way to give them clarity of spiritual sight. But when he comes across people who are physically blind, when they walk away from him, they have 20-20 vision. And when Jesus finds people who are overlooked and oppressed, in a spiritual sense, he, he does whatever he can to help them realize their priceless worth as a dearly loved child of God. He not only sees them, but he includes them. If they're physically oppressed, Jesus does this time and again. And so many, so many instances in my life of reading scripture, I didn't see this. But time and again, if somebody's actually being oppressed, he stands between them and their oppressor. And he passionately uncompromisingly demands that they be treated with compassion and care. Jesus didn't come to save part of the world, and he didn't come to save just part of who we are. He came to save all of it. He came to save all of us. And while Jesus is certainly more than capable on his own of carrying out this global, universally inclusive, all-encompassing mission by himself... That's not what he wants. That's not the dream he has. What God wants, what Christ wants, what the Holy Spirit wants, what they want is to start something inside of us, to start something with us, to start something through us that will grow and reach as many people as possible, that will actually change their lives as they experience the gift of eternal life. Right? For them to see and taste not just the hope of, of heaven someday, but to have the present day hope of a world made right. To have the present tense hope of their own lives made right. The poor receiving enough. The prisoners set free. The broken given the healing they need. The oppressed both seen and lifted up. When Jesus makes the claim all those years ago when he's preaching that hometown sermon that Isaiah 61 is actually coming true, he's saying more than that because he doesn't want to do that on his own. It's not just that Jesus is the Bible coming true. It's not just that we believe that there's truth in the Bible, but we partner with Jesus in making the truth of Scripture happen here and now. And the real question is, are we willing to give our lives to that pursuit? To join God in keeping God's promises for the least of these. That's what we're called to do. Jesus never wants us to just listen to the words of his sermon and walk away unchanged. He's inviting us, he's calling us to do something. And we're about to do something we, we haven't done since I've been here. And that is that, that we're going to do, I guess what I would have to call a surprise offering. A great surprise. Surprise. Here's what I want you to know. We, we recently found out just in the past couple of weeks about this, this group that we want to partner with. It's called RIP Medical Debt. They were created to help deal with the problem of medical debt in our society. right? And if, if you look at these numbers, um, they're, they're shocking. One trillion dollars of medical debt exists in the U.S. alone. 79 million Americans have to choose regularly between trying to keep up with their medical debt and their basic necessities. 
66% of all bankruptcies are connected in one way or another to medical debt. It is an oppression that is hard for us to understand unless we've experienced it ourselves. And through this, this organization, RIP Medical Debt, we contacted them and we said, how much medical debt can you find in Taylor County? And they told us, well, we, we've been able to buy up $1.2 million of medical debt in Taylor County for the most vulnerable people. Okay, that means people who earn less than two times the federal poverty level. Their medical debts are 5% or more of their annual income, or their medical debts are greater than their assets. Okay, that's who they're targeting. They found $1.2 million. What, that, what this, this opportunity that's standing in front of us, what it's really about is the people in this organization are skilled negotiators and they, they gather together portfolios of, of debt for these most vulnerable people and every dollar we give in a moment is going to abolish $100 of medical debt. Every dollar. That means the pennies in your pockets in a moment are worth a buck. Okay, and every dollar is worth a hundred. And so if, church, if we are able to give, and I believe that we can do this, if we give $12,000, we're going to abolish the medical debt for the most vulnerable people in our county. They'll get a letter. It'll have our name on that letter. They will know that this church wants to live out the love of Christ by setting the captives free. We're not just going to talk about this stuff, right? We're not just going to think about it. We're going to do it. Now, I know I sprung this on you, and, and I know you didn't come expecting to give another time this morning, but we believe in a God who gives and gives and keeps giving, and we want to be like our Heavenly Father. So start emptying out those purses and pockets. Get out your checkbook. Find the cash you've got on hand because I want us to be able to join God in forgiving this debt. I want these people in our, our county to know that we, we care for them and we love them the way Jesus does. If you want to do cash, checks, you know, make sure you write RIP medical debt. If, if you want to give online, go ahead and do that. I'm going to stop talking in just a moment. Uh, we're going to play a song, give you another minute to get ready. Uh, and then I'll ask the guys about a minute after the song starts. Uh, we'll go ahead and start passing the trays one more time. Okay? Give us a heart for the hopeless, the weary and wounded, for all who are hungry, helpless and poor. Let us see the sorrow, the pain and the heartache, that all be abandoned in Okay, guys, if you'll start passing the trays. Let us be Jesus today. To the last, to the lost, to the least of these. Let us be Jesus today. May we reach out to the broken. The beaten, the battered, to all who have fallen, disgraced and ashamed. 
want to thank everybody for, for participating with such little warning. Obviously, uh, as, as this week progresses, if you feel called to give more, please just let us know. We'll find a way to, to connect your gift with what we're doing here. If we end up getting more than $12,000, we've talked with them, and they said that we can start to buy up the medical debt in all eight of the surrounding counties around Abilene. This is really cool. This, this is what the church should be doing. And so I want everybody to get to be a part of it. You know, I, I want us to understand that saving people, it means getting people to heaven, but it means more than just getting people to heaven, right? It's about eternity, but it's more immediate than that. It's about eternal life, but it's also about eternal life transforming this life. It, it may last forever, but it has to start sometime. And Jesus says, when he gets up, today is the time. This moment is the moment for all the promises of God to come true. Through us, through the help of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ and the strength of God through us. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their spouses will be out in our church lobby uh, to receive you for prayer or spiritual conversation. If you have anything you came with this morning, any burden, any, any blessing that you want to share with a Christian couple, please go to them as together we stand and sing.